1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Frank Baumgartner, who's the author of The Politics of Information, Problem Definition, and the Course of Public Policy in America. Frank has written this book this year with Brian Jones. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with him today. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I'm talking with Frank Baumgartner today, the author of The Politics of Information, Problem Definition, and The Course of Public Policy in America. Frank, how are you doing today?
0: Doing great. Thanks for having me, Heath.
1: Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on and to uh, talk to you uh, about your book, the book he's written with Brian Jones. Before we get to the book, maybe you can just introduce yourself just a little bit and also your co-author.
0: Well, I'll be glad to. Um, I've been working with Brian Jones uh, since I met him in the 1980s, and uh, we published a book together in 1993, uh, Agendas and Instability in American Politics. And since then, we've uh, we've edited some books and uh, written another book called The Politics of Attention, which was published in 2005. And the project um, that this is all based on started from that first book, and then we... um, decided that we could gather data on every government activity since World War II. And uh, we like to think of that as a a moment of temporary insanity, but the the insanity became permanent, and we have developed what we call the Policy Agendas Project that uh, allows people to track attention and government activities to all issues across time back to World War II.
1: Yeah, well, the insanity of your ambition has led to such such uh, uh, productivity, and, and this latest book is, is really a part of that. You know, as you just allude, the book, in many ways, picks up where your last book, The Politics of Attention, leaves off. I wonder if you'd give us just the briefest of overviews of the findings of that book and how it set up your inquiry into this new subject.
0: Yeah, let me even go back one book further than that to Agendas and Instability because that was the beginning of our interest. And, you know, it's funny, Brian, people might not realize, but I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan, and one of my best mentors or closest mentors, although I had many, one was John Kingdon who wrote a book about agenda setting during the time that I was in grad school. And Brian at the time was a professor and department chair at Wayne State University where one of his colleagues was uh, Charles Cobb who was one of the, I mean Charles Elder, uh, who worked with Roger Cobb uh, on one of the first books on agenda setting. And Brian and I then had this uh, mutual interest, although I had written my first book about French politics, it was about agenda setting in France, and Brian worked on urban politics, and when we got together as colleagues at Texas A&M, we had so much uh, in common that we decided to, to begin a research project. And so the first book we did traced one issue at a time uh, chronologically and demonstrated that you could potentially use a punctuated equilibrium approach to understand how policies change or stay the same over long periods of time. In the second book, The Politics of Attention, we made use of these larger databases that were comprehensive and that, I think, was the most innovative thing that we did because it um, was an approach that hadn't been possible. Without gathering these large comprehensive databases, and the the thing we focused on there was uh, the scarcity of attention, and what we focus on in and the scarcity of tension of attention in that work the politics of attention then drives these um, sporadic but quite dramatic policy changes as people shift their attention or the political system collectively moves from paying attention to one issue to another. In the politics of information, like you say, we pick up from that and we focus in this book on the overabundance of information. The fact that the government gathers information and interest groups and lobbyists and policymakers and businesses and people in society are just flooding over the government in Washington with more and more and more information so that Uh, In contrast to what's often used in the economics literature uh, about an economics of scarcity of information and how people have to pay to get information, we focus on the overabundance of information and the difficulty in dealing with it and the politics of
1: that. So, and to this point, you you describe right at the beginning of the book uh, as of the paradox of search. I wonder if you could describe what's so paradoxical about the way that the government searches for information.
0: Yeah, the way we typically think about searching for information is you know what you're looking for and therefore you uh, organize a search and potentially um, you know hire experts or you have people who know what they're looking for and they potentially uh, evaluate all the alternative approaches to the problem. and search for information and gather the information and this is the concept of uh, perfect rationality really or cybernetics or or how you should make decisions how we really do make decisions is quite different from that and here I should preface that by saying that we're talking about complicated or technically complex decisions not simple ones because simple decisions we really do uh, make in I think a relatively rational way but in uh, the paradox of search, what we argue is that when the, when the topic of search is relatively undefined, we're better off in uh, really approaching it from a perspective of complexity and looking and searching and just kind of wallowing in society, looking for whatever might be out there and uh, accepting information from whatever source it might come from rather than uh, assuming that we know the parameters from which the pro- the problem can be solved and searching only in narrowly defined ways. The problem with this complexity, though, is it's impossible to manage. And so we argue that the government alternates between enthusiasm about the complexity of a problem and the many different ways in it, that it could be approached and then frustration with this difficulty of management in an effort to impose order and hierarchy and leadership and control. And uh, we argue that the, the government really alternates between these emphases and that that's inevitable. We can't have government otherwise because um, you have to have some kind of leadership, authority, jurisdictional control and boundaries around organizational missions. And yet, given the complexity of the world, we continually find that those boundaries are misplaced, that the uh, issues are more complex than we thought we understood at first, and therefore we go back to a cycle of complexity, complexifying our searches and multiplying the institutional structures. And after we do that for a little while, we find that the institutional structures are so complex and uh, mutually contradictory and uh, Working at cross purposes with each other, that we we uh, insist on some kind of organizational clarification, and that and, that restricts information.
1: Yeah, I want to go go back to this sort of how this relates to democracy in a little bit. But before we get to that, I, I want to talk a little bit more about sort of empirically what you do. You you cover about uh, fifty years of U.S. federal policymaking history. I wonder why this time period. You sort of allude to it at the start of our conversation, but 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 why this time period? And what is bracketing these years? How does this make sense for what you're studying?
0: Well, uh, partly uh, we study what we know about, and we organize the policy agendas project to gather information about government activities. Uh, we started that in the 1990s, and uh, we've continued it up to today. And so we have current, relatively current information, and then we've gone back uh, and gathered historical information all the way back to 1947. So there's no reason why a person couldn't use the same approach uh, to study other historical periods. Um, I don't think there's anything special about this period, but that's the da- that's the period for which we have data.
1: Yeah, you write a good deal about what you describe as the, the thickening and broadening of government. Um what did these two terms mean exactly? I think they sort of I think they really uh, I think they were interesting for the book and and um what did you find about whether the government has has thickened or broadened?
0: Yeah, we 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 uh, coined those terms and I hope that people find them useful. Uh, we're accustomed to thinking of the growth of government as an un- increased involvement in the government in a wider variety of policy domains. So for example, if you go back to World War II, um, you know, the government really wasn't very substantially involved in the health care system. Medicare had not been established. Um, and so uh, the establishment of Medicare and then especially now um, with increased involvement in the government in the health care field, you can see that there was an, a domain of the economy and the society that was pretty much private, in the private sector, now has become substantially part of the public sector. So that's the spread or the the growth of government and we call that the broadening of government because it's involved, it's the involvement of the government in a wider range of policy activities. Thickening government is when we have more and more different government agencies involved in the same domain and that is uh, There's just greater intensity of activity and more activity. Now, you wouldn't create a new agency if you were simply going to do the exact same thing as an existing agency. So is already doing. So the um, thickening of government is the um, creation of parallel, partially differentiated organizations of government that seek to address different aspects of the same problem. So I always use the example of poverty to think about this. You could give income assistance or you could add to a program about income assistance a program to give housing assistance. And you could add to that a program to give free lunches in the schools. And you could add to that a program to help poor people get better health care access. And to that you could add a program to help poor people have greater access to public transportation. And that's just an example of how we thicken and create more programs that address different aspects of the same problem. The same would be true of the military. You know, we have a wide range of uh, different agencies within the military that seek to address different aspects of our national security issues.
1: And I wonder how does how does this relate to you know sort of what you described earlier, which is the proliferation of of information related to complex problems. What are what are the associations, whether they're causal or, or correlations between this this spread of information and, and thickening and broadening?
0: Well what we say is very simple. That is the more you search, the more you find. So the more you pay attention to the underlying complexity of various social problems or military problems, national security problems, intelligence problems, poverty problems, agricultural problems, health care problems, the more you search to understand the complexity and the possible solutions to those problems, uh, the more you find that, yes, indeed, they're quite complicated and perhaps you could establish a program to address one aspect of it. And when you establish that program, you gather more information, which usually justifies the continued uh, operation of that program and maybe reveals some inadequacies. And when you look into those inadequacies, you find out that, oops, we missed some other aspect of it, so you create another program, potentially, to address the aspect that's not covered already by the existing programs. So the more you search to understand the underlying nature of the social problems, the more you're tempted to uh, multiply the number of potential government programs to address those problems. Now, this has an important parallel in ideology and it's quite frustrating to people who are uh, opposed to larger and larger government and so over time there's a counter reaction to this accretion of government programs uh, by people who are simply concerned that the government's too big, or that some of the pro- problems are so complex they could never be solved, and uh, those people, we argue, have been very effective in stemming the growth of government by cutting off the information. That is just saying we'll never understand the full complexity of this problem. It's inappropriate for the government to address it in the first place, and furthermore, we have too many government programs that. Um, that are in each other's uh, way, and the jurisdictions are too complicated. So we need to eliminate these redundant programs and clarify the organizational structure of government. And that has happened in various positions and places in U.S. history. And it's a constant tension between clarity and complexity.
1: And and how would you say government? I mean, your, your book is not normative in 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 uh, in most ways. But but how would you say government? sort of should go about dealing with this paradox, because as as you just note, there's a very easy solution, which is sort of just lop off the head, you know, sort of arbitrarily do this in an arbitrary fashion, either by tamping down on, on the access um, uh, groups have to providing information, whatever the type of group it is, or by simply sort of arbitrary way, you know, sh- shutting down programs how do you make sense of, of of the the right way to go about this the 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 way that doesn't fall trap to either of those two approaches
0: well um i mean i could uh reveal my personal prejudices but <laughs> right. i think that without the, doing so much of that <laughs> the uh the, the more important issue is that we believe that these are fundamental and inherent tensions that will never go away and really that's what a lot of ideology what appears to be an ideological difference between left and right in politics, we think, has a more basic, fundamental, cognitive uh, root, which is some people are comfortable with complexity, ambiguity, and uncertainty, and many other people strive for clarity. And then this is related to, but not the same as a desire to uh, promote larger or smaller government. They're, they're slightly different, well, they're quite different things. Uh, and if you wanted to promote smaller government, I think the best way to do so is to stop collecting information. Just don't <laughs> gather it. And we give some examples. I mean, some of them are pretty surprising. The National Rifle Association lobbied Congress successfully in the late 1990s to prohibit the Centers for Disease Control from conducting or funding any research on handgun violence. They're not allowed to do research projects on the causes of handgun violence, although gun violence, of course, is a major source of homicide and death in America, and it's a reasonable position for the Centers for Disease Control to want to understand the nature of that violence. Well, it's illegal for them to fund that research. And without funding the research, of course, there can't be any justification for interventions um, that might, of course, lead to gun restrictions. So by attacking the information, you stem the proposal to create a government regulatory agency or program at its root before it's even discussed.
1: Uh, It's such an interesting anecdote and I think fits so well with the, the story that you tell in your book. Um, the book is out, um, and uh, what do we have next to look forward to? Uh, are, are the two of you working on something together, or is there something else that's on your your, your agenda right now that we might look forward to?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, Brian and I both uh, have very active agendas. Uh, I think the biggest thing that's happening now is the Policy Agendas project has gone international, and next summer we expect to expand our website, which is policyagendas.org, to incorporate the data that have now been collected in uh, 15 other countries. So that on our website, rather than studying the history of policy attention in the United States, there will be a parallel website where you can use the same web interface to do that in Great Britain, Denmark, the Netherlands, France, Spain, Switzerland, many other countries that are part of a growing network of people who have followed our lead and Uh, Created these huge databases of government activities in their own country. So that's that's one big that's a very big agenda that will keep us busy for years. I have a book coming out about policy agendas in Spain, uh, which I did with some colleagues there, and uh, I'm also following up on a lot of research that I've done uh, about racial injustice in the criminal justice system with the death penalty and. I've been involved in some research on uh, traffic stops and the concept of driving while black. Those are very statistical analyses of uh, official statistics in North Carolina about traffic stops.
1: Yeah, well, I look forward to it all. Uh, as someone who um, uses both in my research and also my teaching the pol- uh, Policy Agendas project, um, I, I'm excited for this expansion of it and, and couldn't recommend it more to other scholars. Uh, Frank's book, The Politics of Information, Problem Definition and the Course of Public Policy in America. is published by Chicago, uh, University of Chicago Press with uh, uh, Brian D. Jones. Frank, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Oh, well, Heath, it's been a pleasure and uh, I'm really glad to have been able to be a part of this show. Thanks very much.